you would take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We will be picking up our study of this Gospel with verse 10, and I'll be reading through verse 17. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. According to the account in Genesis, tragedy struck with the fall of mankind into sin. It had a devastating impact on every aspect of creation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And what he means there in the context in which he's speaking is that when humanity fell into sin, the entire creation was affected. Our world became an abnormal world. And part of that futility is sickness and disease, physical infirmity, and spiritual bondage. And since all of this is a result of the fall, it's just as common for Jesus to come in contact with such afflictions as it is for us in our own day. The difference, of course, is that Jesus had the power to do something about it. We see his power in this story that Luke tells us about Jesus and a woman who experienced a physical disability which had a spiritual source. The story begins with this desperate need there in verses 10 and 11. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. It was obvious to everyone who saw this woman that she was suffering. We don't know what the medical diagnosis may have been. 
But we know the woman's suffering was acute. She was stooped over with pain. Her disability affected certainly everything in her life. It limited her capacity for work. It must have disturbed her rest when she laid down at night. It most likely hindered her relationships, prevented her from living what we would all consider to be a normal life. There must have been times when she struggled with deep discouragement and despair. And she had suffered all of this for nearly 20 years. Some of you can testify (laughs) to the difficulty of living a life of contentment while living a life of chronic pain and permanent physical limitations. In those circumstances, even someone who knows the joy of the Lord can be tempted to self-pity. In many ways, this is a continuation of what Jesus taught in the previous passage that we saw last week. Some people would have looked at this woman and would have been wondering, what did she do? What sin had she committed to deserve all this? They would have made that assumption. Because that was the assumption that everyone made. It's an assumption that many still make in our own day. But there is nothing in the text that gives any credence to that assumption. There's nothing in the text that that attributes her suffering to her sin. Rather, she is described in verse 16 as a, a daughter of Abraham. And since Abraham is the man of faith, she belonged to the community of faith. This is why she was there at the synagogue. This woman was not to blame for her suffering. That's not where Jesus places the cause. She was crippled by Satan's cruelty. Luke hints at the devil's involvement when he says that her sickness was caused by a spirit. And that diagnosis is confirmed in verse 16, where Jesus says that she was bound by Satan. Now, we need to be careful here, because just as we do not assume someone's affliction is a result of their sin, neither do we assume that someone's affliction is the result of satanic bondage. Jesus knew as soon as he saw this woman what the situation was. Just a reminder, we're not him. We don't have that kind of insight What we do find out here is that this is a possibility. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to attribute every medical difficulty either to judgment upon sin or to some direct attack by Satan. We need to remember there is a third, far more common source of our physical ailments, And that is that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. Sickness and disease and disability is a part of living in a fallen world. So there are those who misinterpret Luke 13 
verse 11, to mean that all of our physical troubles are caused by some kind of demonic spirit. Yet as mysterious as it may seem, God sometimes does allow his people to suffer spiritual attack that causes physical disability, and this was a clear example. If you want another example, go back to Job. The woman was bowed low, physically, literally, by demonic oppression. Her physical trouble was caused by spiritual torment. Satan's cruelty in crippling this woman is only one example of the hatred that he has for us. Her physical disability is a picture of our own spiritual oppression. One commentator wrote this, the woman's physical condition was not due simply to physical causes. Christ declared it to be a bondage induced by Satan, whose malevolence has always sought from the very beginning to rob man of his dominion and dignity and degrade him into a slave. Few men and women have bent backs physically, but morally and spiritually, all men and women find themselves sooner or later bent and bowed by weaknesses of one kind or another from which they have not the strength to free themselves. That is the condition in which God found each of us. And that is the condition of every man, woman, and child born into this world. Even if God has not allowed the enemy to afflict our bodies, as he sometimes does, Satan is always trying to break our spiritual backs with the burden of sin. And this is what we need to understand. There is no way for us to free ourselves from this debilitating bondage. Any more than this woman that Luke is telling us about could ever save herself from this disabling spirit. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that without the saving work of God, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good. We cannot get rid of our back-breaking burden of sin, but Jesus can take it. There's a reason why Bunyan used that image in his Pilgrim's Progress. Christian was carrying the burden of sin on his back, and it was weighing him down. And he was bent over just as this woman is physically bent over, until what happened? Until he gets to the cross. And then the burden falls from his back and rolls into the empty tomb. And he can stand. And he is free. Well, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. And said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Can I point out one thing to you before we move on to the main portion of the text? 
It's there in verse 12, and it, it struck me just this week as I was studying this. I'd never seen this before. There are things in Scripture that sometimes they're, they're just so unusual, and you wonder how you missed this. Jesus saw her, and here's this woman, bent over, crippled for 18 years. And Jesus calls her over to him. Now, if I'm in Jesus' position, and I see someone in that condition my inclination is going to be to go over to her. But Jesus calls her to him. Why? Because Jesus is still Lord. Because Jesus, as Lord, is under no obligation Because Jesus will be compassionate, he will be merciful, but he does not want us to get those roles mixed up. To have the kind of attitude that we see around us so much today, right? We, we hear so many people talking about this, this you know, victimhood mentality. I have suffered so much, God owes me. I don't care how much you have suffered, God owes you nothing. No matter how much you have suffered, your very breath is an unmerited gift from God. And our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, need to be kept on the throne. I don't think I'm reading all that into this. I think that's what we're intended to see. When we would expect something else, we would expect Jesus to get up and walk to her. And instead, he calls her to himself. Jesus saw her, we're told. He noticed her. He paid attention to her. She comes shuffling into the synagogue, doubled over by her disability. Immediately, everyone sees her. All those in the synagogue surely would have known her. They knew her need. They knew her suffering. They knew what she had been through. But it seems that only Jesus reacts and he calls her to him. He is the Son of God who sees our suffering. And he saw this woman and he has compassion on her. So he calls her over, invites her to come where he is doesn't want her to get the wrong impression that she is owed anything 
But nonetheless, he wants her to be with him. And he saves her. He spoke words of deliverance. Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And at the same time, Jesus touches her. He laid his hands on her. And immediately, she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And once again, I'm going to remind you, when you see so-called healers, you need to compare what they claim to be doing with the kind of healing that we find in the Scripture. There is no partial healing in the Scripture. There is no gradual healing in the Scripture. There is immediate healing. There is total healing. And it is healing which is done publicly which everyone can see. When we're dealing in our own day with so-called faith healers, often the challenge is put to them, let's see some evidence. You're claiming all of these healings. How about some x-rays? The people in the synagogue didn't need x-rays. They knew this woman. They knew she wasn't faking anything. Nobody's going to walk around bent over double for 18 years in the hopes that one day they'll be able to put something over on people. (laughs) Just a practical joke. It's April Fool's Day. I've been fine all along. This woman had been through terrible suffering, not only physical But what Jesus is doing here is a very uncommon thing. In those days, no one would have wanted to touch or come near someone with this kind of disability. And religious leaders themselves usually refused to have any direct contact with with, with women at all, much less a disabled one. But Jesus reached out and touched this crippled woman, and the moment he touched her, she stood up straight. How do you do that? I lay down to sleep at night, and in the morning, I have trouble standing up straight. She's been bent over for 18 years. But one touch of Jesus, and the bondage is lifted. Satan's power is destroyed, and the woman is fully and completely cured. And immediately, she does what we would expect her to do. She began glorifying God. Her heart is full of thanksgiving, and she stands up straight and tall and begins to worship. Once she had experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ, she did what Christians do. We want to give glory to God. And this account is exactly that. It is a picture of salvation. Jesus noticed us all in our need. Looking down, he, lost, he, he saw our lost and he, our fallen race. He, he, he saw us bowed low in the bondage of the enemy. And when he saw this, he had mercy upon us. 
Gregory of Nyssa, one of the church fathers, defined mercy as a voluntary sorrow which enjoins itself to the suffering of another. We might refer to it as empathy, but theologically, it's mercy. Our experience of it is that it is mercy. God saw us in that condition of bondage, and he sent his son to join himself in our suffering by taking on humanity. By becoming a man and going to the cross, he joined himself in our suffering. And in dying for our sins, he voluntarily undertook the greatest of all sorrows. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we were called to him. We were called to him. Here we go again, right? How how is the gospel so often presented? God did all of this and and now you need to come. You need to make a decision for him. As if God's just waiting there for us. Jesus, that misuse of Revelation 3. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Not an evangelistic verse. If you use it as an evangelistic verse, boy, Jesus just looks so pathetic. He's standing at the door, he's knocking, he's just hoping, hoping you're going to let him in. That's speaking about Jesus and his fellowship with the church. That's not talking about salvation. The only way we are going to be freed from the bondage in which we find ourselves is when Jesus sees us and calls us. When we heard the gospel, Jesus called us. And when we came, as inevitably one will when Jesus calls, he said, you're free. You're free from the guilt of sin. You're free from bondage to the enemy. He touched us with his grace. He healed our souls. And in response, what do we do? In response, we're here this morning. Because we want to give him glory. And we want to praise him. And we want now to live our lives for him. Jesus has this same kind of compassion for us. Even if it seems like no one else cares, he sees our need. He knows our situation. He knows our troubles, the burden of our guilt, the torment of the enemy, the struggle in our soul, the distress of our grief, the breakdown of our relationships, whatever physical ailments we may have. He knows them all. And he is merciful toward us. He sees all this and with the mercy and pity of his heart and in his compassion, he calls us to himself and says, come and be healed. And he touches us with now nail-scarred hands. And he heals us 
for the glory of God. For the glory of God. No matter how long you have been in bondage, Jesus can save you. You need not wait another day. He will deliver you from the guilt of your sin and he will forgive you. He will loose you from sin and from Satan by sending the Holy Spirit to take control in your life. He will heal all the deformities of your soul. And one day, by the power of his resurrection life, he will deliver us from all our physical disabilities as well. He has not promised full deliverance in this life, but in the life to come. Remember, we are living in an abnormal world in which disability is the norm. Every one of us has something wrong. Even if we are not disabled from birth or by an injury, most of us will be disabled by the breakdown of our bodies as we grow old. Do I hear an amen? And we rebel against this. We're dismayed by all the debilitating effects of the fall on our physical bodies. And yet, as the people of God, we live in hope of a physical resurrection. The miracle Jesus performed for this woman shows what cure he will bring when he comes again. That day is coming when the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lame will walk. Whatever physical weakness we may suffer in this life, whatever diseases and disabilities we endure, someday Jesus will say to us what he said to this woman, you are free. He will give us perfect bodies. These bodies will be transformed to perfection. I don't know what that entails. I don't know what that's going to look like. My conjecture is that God will determine the precise moment in which these bodies were at their peak. And that's what we'll be. I don't know that for sure. They'll certainly be even better than that. But, you know, if we get to know each other at a certain point in our human history, we may not recognize each other right away. (laughs) It's like, oh, look, you have hair. Oh, I'm waiting for that day. Well, You would think, right? You you, you come to the end of verse 13, and it sounds like a good place to end the story. The woman is healed, God is glorified. But Luke has more to tell us. As strange as it may seem, there is a man there in the synagogue who was not altogether happy with the miracle that Jesus had performed. This always boggles my mind because it happens so often as you read through the Gospels. You have these Pharisees and Jesus heals someone and they begrudge it. They want to take issue with what Jesus has done. 
This guy is quite annoyed, actually. Verse 14, we read that the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. As the head of the synagogue, this man ought to have been the holiest person present, most godly person around. But rather than sharing the compassion of Christ, he demonstrates a callous indifference for this woman who was in such need. Rather than glorifying God for what he had done, he could only find fault. Part of the man's problem was that he had his own set of rules. This synagogue official wasn't concerned any longer with the law of God. He had his own rules, and he wanted everybody else to live by them. If you want the blessing of God, you do what I say. And one of those rules was that you could barely lift a finger on the Sabbath. So the man was highly offended when Jesus performed this miracle. Because for this synagogue official, performing a miracle fell into the category of work. Now, it doesn't seem like Jesus had to exert himself very much. He called her over, so he's not moving. He spoke to her, you're freed from your sickness. And then from where he was, he stretched out his arm. Even by pharisaical standards, that's not work. And this, this, this man, notice, this guy didn't even have the courage to confront Jesus about this directly. Instead, he levels his criticism at everybody else. He began saying to the crowd in response. You'll have to wait. You can't be healed on the Sabbath. I understand. You've been like this for 18 years. Yeah, that's no fun. I get it. You should have come back tomorrow. As if, if she had come back tomorrow, this guy could have done anything for her. He had 18 years. He did nothing. Jesus is what she needed. So, this is what he says. Come back. You've got six days. Presumably during business hours. And this is ironic because it, it presumed that the woman could have been healed if she had just come back the next day. But only Jesus has the power to heal. The synagogue ruler doesn't. Jesus was ready to do it right away. Jesus wasn't telling her to come back another time. This poor woman had been suffering for 18 agonizing years, and Jesus wasn't going to let her suffer one day longer. It was time for her to be healed. And yet you see the 
hard heart of this man. As a ruler of the synagogue, it's his responsibility to provide for the spiritual and practical care of the people in that community, especially people like this woman. But he had no compassion on this woman's suffering. And there was no joy in her salvation. God had done an amazing thing. It's not like this happened every day. And he was unaffected. This man thought he had good biblical theological reason for telling her to come back the next day. He thought that healing people on the Sabbath was against the law of God. As far as the ruler was concerned, the Sabbath day was for worship and rest, but not a day for mercy. And Jesus rebukes him. Even though the man isn't talking to Jesus... It's another thing you just see all the time. There is never any question about who is in charge. Jesus always takes control of every situation. And he does that here, and he rebukes the man. And not just him, but everybody who agrees with him. Notice, verse 15, But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites. He speaks to the man, but he speaks in the plural because he knows there are other people there who are going to agree with this guy. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? You know, it, it, it's almost, and maybe it is, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, what better day than the Sabbath day? The Sabbath day is the day that God has provided for his people. Of course, I would heal her on the Sabbath day. Now, notice what Jesus does not do. He does not deny the significance of the Sabbath. He does not say that the Sabbath at this point is no longer binding. No matter how you understand the Sabbath, Jesus has not yet shed his blood. He has not yet instituted the new covenant. Jesus, the woman, and the synagogue ruler are living under the old covenant. The Sabbath remains fully in effect no matter what you think might happen down the road. Jesus does not violate the Sabbath. Instead, he restored the Sabbath to God's original intention by saying that the day is a day for doing mercy. In doing this, Jesus is claiming his lordship over this day. The title that Luke uses here is significant. When Jesus answered the ruler of the synagogue, he is speaking as Lord. See that in verse 15? But the Lord answered him. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath accused this man of hypocrisy. He pointed out that they were perfectly willing to care for their animals on the Sabbath by leading them to water. And of course, this is true. The rabbis had precise regulations concerning the watering of livestock on the Sabbath. According to Later rabbinic tradition known as the Mishnah, people could lead their animals to water as long as they didn't carry anything. 
These human traditions were intended to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. There was nothing about them in Scripture, however. They weren't God's regulation. They were regulations that men put in place as a fence around God's regulations. We don't want to break God's law, so we're going to make additional laws to keep us away. It's like putting a fence around the tree in the garden. Of course, Jesus, God didn't tell Adam to put a fence around the tree. He didn't even tell Adam what Eve later said, that we can't eat from the tree or even touch it. God just said, don't eat. But man has this impulse to add to what God has said. And it always gets us in trouble. When God gave the Sabbath law to Moses, he said that people should not work on the seventh day. The fourth command said, very simply, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That is, keep it separate. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but, on this, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Period. That's it. God told Moses, Moses, you tell the people, seventh day, don't work. And yet, the Pharisees and priests, pastors, come along and say, let me tell you what that means. It doesn't seem that complicated. Don't work on the Sabbath. Unlike the Pharisees, God did not minutely regulate the details of what it did and did not mean to work. God thought it was self-evident. As far as he was concerned, it was perfectly appropriate for people to meet the needs of their animals... The Sabbath was not just for people, it was also for animals. As beasts of burden rested from their work and people could, as they rested from their work in the fields, they still needed food and drink and people could give it to them without breaking the Sabbath. That's not work, that's life. Even the Pharisees, for all their legalism, found a way to be kind to animals. Pharisees for the ethical treatment of animals, I guess. If only they had cared as much for people. And they didn't. This was their inconsistency, as Jesus referred to it, their hypocrisy. Although the ruler of the synagogue would take care of his animals on the Sabbath, he would not let a human being be healed on the Sabbath. But if the Sabbath was good for animals, shouldn't it be even better for people? It's the point Jesus is getting at. What better day for this woman to be delivered from a debilitating disability than the Sabbath? The man's real problem was not primarily theological, it was spiritual. 
He misunderstood the true purpose of the Sabbath. That is true. But his deeper problem was his hard-hearted resistance to the saving work of Jesus Christ. He could not recognize it in the woman. And he did not desire it for himself. He thought his own human traditions were more important than helping someone who was suffering. And in defending his law, he was keeping people from grace. Jesus calls us to give other people the same kind of grace that he has given to us through the empty tomb, through the cross. This is a grace that notices people in need. It's a grace that is not afraid to touch when people are broken It's a grace that brings people to Jesus for healing. We don't have the power to cure people the way Jesus did. Jesus still does. And we ought to pray for him to heal those who are in need, if that is his will. But more than that, by our love and compassion, we can be agents of his saving work. We can give people a healing encounter with Jesus Christ through the gospel. We can prepare them for his kingdom where death is destroyed and the devil is defeated and every disability of the body, every deformity of the soul is cured. Verse 17 says that as he said this, All his opponents were being humiliated. All his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. His people, the the opponents were humiliated. The crowd was rejoicing. Isn't it always the case that you have this dichotomy between those who oppose the work of God and those who rejoice in the work of God? Earlier, this disabled woman glorified God for her deliverance, and now all the people were praising him. They reveled in his triumph over his enemies and rejoiced in his power to take abnormalities of fallen humanity and transform them by his mercy. And the crowds rejoiced. When Jesus did this for the woman, it was a sign of things to come. Again and again, Jesus glorified God by putting his adversaries to shame for the glory of God. He did this on the cross when he defeated Satan. An open triumph of his atonement. He did it again on Easter Sunday when he defied the powers of hell and rose again from the dead. He's doing it now through the church as his gospel is proclaimed. As we reach out to broken people with his compassion and with his gospel and the Holy Spirit releases them from their bondage. And God is to be glorified. And if you're here this morning and this has not been your experience, Jesus will free you today. Turn from your sin and trust in him and you will be healed. I can't promise you physical healing today. 
but I can promise you that your broken soul will be healed today and your body someday. That is the promise. And that is the hope in which we who are his people rejoice. One day there will be a new normal. And it won't have anything to do with vaccinations or masks. It will be a new normal in which sin has no place. And physical disability has no place. And spiritual brokenness has no place. We will experience that new normal for ourselves if only we will go to Jesus Christ for the healing that only he can accomplish. Father, thank you for it. Thank you. That's our hope, Father. The glorious hope that awaits us. Oh, Father, but we have a taste of that now. Because, Father, for all those who are in Christ, you have healed us. You have taken our broken souls and you have made them whole. Father, continue to do it. Father, give us a heart of compassion to reach out, to see, to speak, to touch, so that others might know his healing power. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.